Hello, my name is Andrew Denny, and I welcome you to Couture and Construction, a weekly podcast featuring conversations with talented, prominent guests to shed light on the stories behind the scenes of luxury build and design. This week, we're joined by Peter Grimaldi of Cheekwood. Episode 72, Summer Gardening at Cheekwood. This month, we're discussing everyone's favorite topic, summer living. From creating an outdoor living space you'll love, designing your vacation home, gardening, and summer entertaining, we've got you covered. Tune in every Monday this May to get all of the tips and inspiration you need to spring into summer. We're stepping outside of the booth to get some sunshine and summer garden inspiration by recording today's podcast amongst the flowers at Nashville's botanical garden, Cheekwood. Cheekwood is a 55-acre botanical garden and art museum located on the historic Cheek Estate. Originally built as the home of Leslie and Mabel Cheek in 1929, Cheekwood is one of the finest examples of an American country place era estate. Since being converted into a Museum of Art and Botanical Garden in 1960, Cheekwood has presented world-class art exhibitions, spectacular gardens, and a historic estate unlike anything else. Each year, Cheekwood welcomes over 400,000 visitors, making it one of the city's top cultural attractions. From 250,000 blooming bulbs in the spring to one mile of holiday lights in the winter, there's always something to see. And who better to give us advice on summer gardening than the Vice President of Gardens and Facilities at Nashville's largest garden, Cheekwood. Peter Grimaldi joined Cheekwood in July 2017 after five years of service at Daniel Stowe Botanical Garden as the Director of Horticulture and Facilities. Peter's work at Public Gardens characterizes a career that includes building not only better garden spaces, but also stronger organizations that effectively leverage physical growth and expansion against mission-driven success. Before his service to public horticulture, Peter worked in commercial landscape construction where he managed large-scale installations throughout the United States, including the restoration of President Lincoln's summer cottage in Washington, D.C., work at Myriad Botanical Gardens in Oklahoma City, and the NASCAR Hall of Fame in Charlotte, North Carolina. Peter has a Bachelor of Plant Science from Cornell University with a concentration in ornamental horticulture and floriculture. Peter, thank you so much for being our guest today. It's really an honor to be here at Cheekwood. And uh, pun intended, let's dig in. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. So tell us where we are. Tell us about Cheekwood. Cheekwood is an historic estate, botanical garden, and museum of art, built by the Cheek family for themselves in the late 20s and, and 1930s, and occupied, lived in by that family for the next 30 years through three generations, um, when in 1960 it was gifted to the people of Nashville as the Tennessee Botanical Garden and Fine Arts Center and since then has endeavored to present both um, both uh, world-class horticultural displays and fine art collections. It is an accredited museum of art and a collecting institution. And, and here recently, in the past 10 years, is when we kind of circled back to touch down on our history. 
um, including not only the the family history, but the design legacy and in the original designer, Brian Fleming, who's kind of a big deal, as (laughs) as we understand it and like to say, Um, but also the significance of of the estate uh, here in Nashville. So, you know, knowing those things and knowing kind of the the history of this place, uh, what impact has it had on the city itself? I mean, to me, it's just vast. It's an internationally known place. Um, it's, it's really impressive what not only was created now almost a hundred years ago and the legacy it's had, but the people who are in care of that, that here, uh, what do you feel like the impact's been on this city? And, and even from a design perspective, um, it's probably has very long tentacles. I think from a design perspective, it's a, it's a, a strong classical representation of a, of a large Southern home, home place. And as one might, you know, embark upon expressing themselves in that way and and build their own space. With respect to horticulture, Cheekwood positioned itself in the 1960s to be the horticultural epicenter of, of Nashville. And when we built and opened our, Visitor Services Center, Botanic Hall, in 1972, it was it was just that. It was Botanic Hall um, and, and intended to be the home of like-minded people in Nashville, horticulture with, you know, the horticulturally inclined, the gardeners, um, the enthusiasts, a place for people to come, meet, share their ideas, and enjoy the outdoor space. And then in the, in the art world, Cheekwood is Nashville's only collecting institution. And so it, it's a repository for Amer- American art, um, which in that way positions it well, it's, it, it well as an international destination to support the tourism industry in Nashville because folks can come to Nashville, see a slice of Nashvillean history, but then kind of grounded in the American art collection that just kind of broadens the context. Mm-hmm. So tell me <clears throat> when a visitor comes here, what should they expect? Um, tell us a, tell us about a visit to Cheekwood, especially if it's maybe somebody's first time. What do they have to see? I believe that they have to find themselves on the western elevation of the mansion, looking out off of Wisteria Arbor, over the Cheekwood landscape, and into Percy Warner Park. Mm. Um and it's, it is important to recognize that, that Cheekwood is embraced by the Warner Parks, and these two properties have been inextricably linked since they were both created around the same time mm. um, and, and in a way protect one another and the experience that each one has. But to stand on that side of the mansion and look out onto the horizon, you're looking over not only Cheekwood, which is gorgeous, but also Percy Warner Park, which is thousands of acres and creates an entirely different experience than if you were looking out over a modern subdivision. (laughs) And the original designer who I mentioned earlier, Brian Fleming, also consulted with whatever Metro Parks was, you know, organized to be and calling themselves uh, those days. Um, And so Fleming also designed the historic and, and the 
absolutely gorgeous Grand Alley uh, at the end of Bellamy Boulevard and the entrance to Percy Warner Park. Ah, okay. And so this was this was an engineered district, highly intentional, highly intentional, and and he was he was considering and manipulating and a significant part of the city when he laid out not only that central access in the park, but also Cheekwood and how it responds to the topography and some of the sight lines through the park. Wow. Um, and so that that's the iconic moment mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. Cheekwood. Mm-hmm. Um, and for someone that's coming here for their first time, it depends on whether they're, what type of experience they're seeking. Um, by by our experience and, and, and our own measurements, there is a there's a distinction between visitors who know what know what they're coming for, be it a program or uh, you know, specific exhibition or folks that are just coming for less programmed, you know, informal time. Um, and so, you know, you've got map people and you've got people that, <laughs> that are less inclined to pick up the map. I would just you know, I would encourage folks to come out and go where they might like to go, um, just look around and try and try and intuitively find their way around the property and, and explore. So, how much how much how much time would you say somebody should allow for for a nice visit here? I'd say at least two hours. Okay. So the the property is 60, 66 acres. Is that correct? It's 55 acres. 55 acres. And it is beautifully, beautifully, it's just perfection. So what does it take to keep that up? A very strong team of gardeners and horticulturists. Um, It it takes a certain amount of vision and long-range planning, which Cheekwood has managed very, very well over the years. One of our fundamental fundamental challenges is that the estate wasn't purpose built as a public venue, mm. and so you're lay you're layering on this institutional use mm. and trying to manage and direct experiences for hundreds of thousands of people through a property that was designed for four and their, <laughs> and their friends. Um, <clears throat> and so, how to maintain the historic integrity of the property, but also organize the experience in the way that really activates that space has been that kind of greater design challenge over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then horticulturally, like I said, it's a it's a very strong and dedicated team. I'd like to say that I take my team anywhere and do anything. Um, with respect to what they're actually doing in the gardens, it's very similar to what you're doing at home. Mm-hmm. It's it's the same basic activities at the same time of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just done on a larger on a larger scale. So we're here in Nashville, and you know, larger geographic area would be the southeast, but kind of in our mid south environment. How many how many seasons, or what are the seasons you view? Uh, here for planting and an exhibition or what are distinct seasons that we have in our, in our environment? So sp- spring, summer, spring, I think you've got all four. Okay. Right now. You absolutely have all four in Nashville. Um, uh, 
here in Middle Tennessee, where I believe we're, according to the USDA hardiness zone, 7A, flirting with 6B, uh, but you can barely get away with some of those um, more tender plants uh, that, that would be uh, more successful in, in warmer climates, either closer down towards the Gulf or in somewhere like Charleston yeah. or, or Savannah. Mm-hmm. Um, so spring, of course, summer, of course, fall, yes. Um, and winter interest, like some of the more, um, or I should say less temperate and colder climates is kind of going to be based on architecture, mm-hmm. structure, texture, and berries, you know, just like yeah. you are, like yeah. I said, anywhere else in the, in the country. But then with the, with the annual exhibitions, we heavily activate again, um, I should say three out of the four or, or all four. Um, so spring we celebrate with tulips and our permanent daffodil collection, which by now well outnumbers the annual input of tulips. Summer is a presentation of uh, summer annuals on the cutting edge. We try and stay on trend and, and pick out exactly. It's really all about color at, at Cheekwood, um, exactly what we need to achieve the design intent of, of a particular summer installation. Here recently, we've begun featuring more and more tropical plants for mm. kind of larger plant material, different textures, more of an exotic look, just to kind of bedazzle the display, if mm-hmm. you will. <laughs> um, and then fall is mums and pumpkins. And this, of course, supported on throughout and, on, and all around us by the permanent plant collections and the Arboretum, which Cheekwood is an accredited and... and um, Arboretum presented at at a high level. Um, so I like to say there's always something blooming at Cheekwood in the depths of you know January and early February. I would start with the orchids in the mansion. Um, so that's how <laughs> that's pretty cool. That's how we've come to activate the that fourth that fourth season, if, if you will. Do you have a favorite season here? Probably the, probably the late summer, early fall. Okay. Why? And you're because you're you're still getting, <clears throat> you're still getting some of the longer and later blooming summer flowers, um, which then kind of fade into some more of the classical associations with, with autumn and the, and the fall colors. Mm. Cooler weather. You've mm-hmm. kind of been waiting for. You've been waiting for spring for a while too. Yeah. But. yeah, yeah. It seems like this has been a particularly drawn out winter. It just feels like it just kind of kept going and going and going. And even today, as we record, we're in the mid sixties, mm-hmm. and that's the middle of May. So next week, though, will be. Uh, I think summer's on. Um. So. Let's talk about the inspiration that Cheekwood offers its visitors. Um, How do you see, or what's your experience been with people taking that with them and applying it to their lives in their space? Um, Do you have, uh, you know, tips? Do you have uh, any words of wisdom 
for, for our listeners? It's really all about the plants. And we can, and we can talk about that. What you might not consider and what is really the brilliance in the original design layer is the relationship of the house with the surrounding landscape. Um, I say all the time that we could be celebrating Chico because it's big and old, but it is actually gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And Brian Fleming was a genius, and that's why Cheekwood. That's that's why Cheekwood is you know and and always has been significant. Um, and it was Frank Lloyd Wright who said the house is of the hill and not on the hill, and Fleming nailed that. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a big house. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can be, it can be a bit, oh, it can be a bit overbearing from certain perspectives. But it does look like it's literally growing out of the top of the limestone ridge. Mm. And so, for those of of your listeners who who may have larger properties, um, how the how the home is situated, rotated, and precisely placed on the property is something that you could take away from Cheekwood and appreciate at Cheekwood. If you've got a smaller house, no problem. The The relationship with, with the land is, is just as important, and there are ways to soften that interface between the house, the foundation of the house, and your your yard mm-hmm. um, or home landscape, you know, which doesn't need to be just a row of, mm-hmm. you know, evergreens planted as a hedge and you know, along the front. So it's amazing hearing you you speak and talking about the original design here and how intentional and perfect that is and contrasting that with the technology available today. It could not have been done better. I mean, it goes to show you that sometimes it just comes down to skill and vision. A hundred years ago where this was plotted out so absolutely perfectly. It really came down to a genius level um, approach to, to do that. And we were talking about a, a shout out to our mutual friend, Gavin Duke. You know, that's what he's really gifted at with landscape architecture and figuring how the structure will integrate into the land. And uh, I know he draws a lot of inspiration from this as well. So it's, it's interesting that you share that. So uh, let's, let's talk about some of the tips that you have for managing gardens. Um, would you consider Tennessee to be a harsh environment, or is it a very welcoming environment? I, I consider Middle Tennessee to be a harsh environment. Okay. And why is that? I think it's a combination of the soil type and extreme temperatures. Um, in, in my experience, which consists of no more than my five years here at, at Cheekwood comparatively, um, comparatively my experience is kind of grounded in the western Piedmont mm-hmm. and the Tidewater, where you could dig a hole as big as this table it's like topsoil and as deep right um, and then back do whatever you got to do backfill it and you might be left with a few 
stones the mm-hmm. size of your fist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the first time I <laughs> I tried to execute just a straightforward <laughs> irrigation project in one of our open lawn areas, and we were not trenching any deeper than four to six inches below the soil surface, and we're pulling rocks out of the ground <laughs> as big as this table. Um, and so... You know, the shallow soils mm-hmm. sitting on top of limes, limestone mm-hmm. can remain saturated and present and mm-hmm. present challenges. So it holds a lot of water. Holds a lot of water. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the extreme temperatures. Uh, so the summer heat is one. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, the occasional cold and and extreme colds that we'll experience every, you know, maybe even five to ten years. Mm-hmm. I love camellias. Mm-hmm. In Charlotte, you grow, you know, you'd have a camellia blooming practically every day of the year. Mm-hmm. And in Nashville, we're pushing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you got to you, you have to do your homework um, and find the plants that will, that, that will thrive here. And uh, and it'll be that much more successful. How do you take care of bugs um, and insects? Is that something that you guys concern yourself with? At, you know, running gardens, or is it just you know? How do you manage that? Because this is it seems like even at my home they can create havoc, and you know I just kind of let it go because a bug's life. Uh, but how do you manage that at a, at a property like this? Well, conversationally, um, and, and when folks ask me similar questions, I'll say if you don't like how your plant looks because of some of the insect damage, I recommend not standing so close to your plants. <laughs> <laughs> um, and... and and move on, right? Because um, in many cases, the bugs are part of just the circle yeah. of life, to be perfectly cliche. Um, but at Cheekwood, um, we do have nationally important plant collections, right? So as a botanical garden, Cheekwood is a repository for that genetic information mm-hmm. of dogwoods, right? Mm-hmm. We've got the nationally accredited Cornus collection. And so... The diversity and health of this collection is significant mm-hmm. um, to, to horticulture and and public gardens in North America at least, and so we need to con- we need to control insect pressure on some on some of those plant collections. Mm-hmm. For for the most part, um, with the exception of the boxwood and the dogwoods and the ash trees, um, our our integrated pest management strategy is is just that. It's meant to be as well-balanced as possible. Grow a healthy plant that can endure a little bit of stress. And you would engage, the you pull the trigger on synthetic insecticides as a last resort. Um, in the case of that, again, those three, the boxwood, the ash, and, and the dogwood, we are using uh, systemic insecticides as a preventative measure. So, you know, it's interesting. We were talking before before we started recording about the ash blight that's, that's happening. Um, and that's probably something important for people to realize. And 
But these things have happened throughout history, correct? Is it again, not to not to overuse the phrase, but the circle of life? Why why does that happen? Why out of nowhere is there all of a sudden danger for for ash trees? So it has it has to do with exotic pests introduced into an ecosystem where there's not there's neither competition nor um, pressure from predation, an abundant food source mm-hmm. and a lack of competition and predation. Mm-hmm. So in the case of, um, <coughs> you know, so chestnut blight and Dutch elm disease are historically what you're going to think of, um, with, which, which are both fungal in nature but dependent on insect vectors. Um, these are are foreign pathogens that are introduced into the environment that the native trees don't have any defense systems for, right? Trees of in the same genus, right? Elms, um, elms in China, who evolved over hundreds and thousands of years with these past pathogens, have developed natural resistance to them, and so that's in fact how. Uh, plant breeders have have managed and built up a resistance um, to those pathogens is by breeding the American elm with the Chinese elm mm-hmm. and then repeatedly backbreeding that hybrid back to the American, hoping to retain, you know, hoping to retain those resistant genes from the Chinese elm while kind of bringing it closer and closer to the phenotype of the American elm. Um, Emerald ash borer is a little bit different because it's an insect. Mm-hmm. And um, these things came in on wooden packing material. Um, Uh-oh. And so, <laughs> right, we're all guilty of that. Yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, consuming products from the global economy that yeah. came from overseas on a pallet or yeah. in a crate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the insects... Have kind of they started in the northeast and are moving this way. So our uh, the northeast has definitely been like Appalachia has been significantly more impacted. Yes, to where we are, but it's just a matter of time. Right? It's just it's, a matter of time. And there's yeah. not really a whole lot we can do about it. Is there? Is there a way to protect the trees, or is it futile? You can chemically treat the trees okay. to to protect them against that emerald ash borer. Which we are doing in Cheapwood. Okay. We're protecting a, pro- a population um, of approximately 185 trees. Yeah, because I mean, ash are pretty. I mean, we have a lot of ash in, in Tennessee. It seems it, like. Yeah, it's it's more, it is one of the climax species, you know, in the in the native forest canopy, and comprises a significant percentage of our of our tree cover here hmm. at Cheapwood. Um, what we're doing is uh, is kind of crazy. It's not a reasonable. It's not a reasonable level of response. But that's uh, one of the things I enjoy working. I enjoy about working in public horticulture is you can do some unreasonable. Things <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's pretty in cool. The, in the uh, wild and crazy things, in the interest of protecting your plants, and so. Uh, our our vision 
um, for Cheekwood is that in five, 10, 20 years, however long it takes this, this insect to ravage uh, the, you know, the ash in our region is, is to kind of present Cheekwood as a, as a haven for the native ash trees. Mm. My personal goal is to say that we tried. Mm-hmm. Because it's tough. These are big trees, and they're so these, big. These bugs are literally parachuting in from above. Mm-hmm. So um, it's not until they infest the tree and and start to reproduce, and that larvae eats their way out, you know, um, that you can really begin to recognize some of the damage because it's this is starting at the top of a hundred foot tall tree, right? You need, need a pair of binoculars to figure that out. Jeez. Oh, man. It's always something. It's, it's always, always something. It's always something. <laughs> uh, so tell me about the events that you guys have have here. So there's a big fundraiser um, every year. It's one of the most prestigious events in Nashville. Um, can you share a little bit about that? So the Swan Ball is... Uh, it's a very well it's a very well established fundraiser that underwrites a significant portion of our annual operating expenses, and so it's a good opportunity for those folks who support Cheekwood and, and have historically supported Cheekwood to get together and and have a good time. Yeah, it's the pictures are always absolutely beautiful. It seems like just a top notch event for for this, for this, uh, facility and, and, and really the community. Um, so it takes, it takes a, uh, really the community to support this, to make this what it is. So it takes very talented people like yourself, but the community really has to support this to make it go around. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. Cheekwood depends disproportionately in comparison to our peer institutions, um, it disproportionately unearned revenue mm-hmm. to support our operations and exi- and exit and exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and so, earned revenue looks like people paying admission and buying memberships, mm-hmm. and those are the people in our community. Mm-hmm. Um, you, De- development and contributed income gifts mm-hmm. is also is also sig- also very significant and helps drive especially some of the capital capital campaigns that we organize on campus. But it daily operations is people walking through the gate because they want to come or buying a membership because they want to come back, um, and then also choosing Cheekwood as a place to celebrate with their friends and family, whether that's a a wedding or a you know corporate event. Mm. Um, so yeah, it, it is the the interest uh, and the support of people the people of Nashville that help us keep the lights on and and maintain the place. Mm. Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot here. So we've got a controversial topic, um, and I say that tongue tongue in cheek, but I often hear about the uh, or I hear. Uh, people talking about native versus invasive plants. And just from your perspective, your expert opinion, 
Um, what does that mean, and and what can you shed some light on this topic, uh, maybe from both sides uh, for our listeners? Sure. Well, the danger is <clears throat> invasive exotic species, and and the risk of in introducing exotic species for some specific function or their aesthetic beauty and um, those plants due to competitive advantage, competitive advantages kind of overcoming the, na the native plants in the area or, or the region. And you know, good examples of that would be kudzu. Mm -hmm. I'll say back, back in the day, I don't mm -hmm. remember exactly when, but you know, the USDA may have even sanctioned the introduction of kudzu to dry out swamplands to increase you know, usable, agri you know, agricultural acreage. Um, and look where, you know. Yeah. <laughs> look, then that plant ate. <laughs> I think they call it the vine that ate the sap. Yeah. Um, or ornamentally, the Bradford pear was introduced in, um, in the 20th century as a medium-sized, you know, well-formed flowering tree with great fall color. Mm -hmm. um, and they said it was, they said it was sterile, but here 40, 50, 60 years later, it is also migrating into some of our native areas. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's the risk. It's the risk of escape from the cultivated landscape, um, displacing the native species out, out competing, not only the native species, um, in that environment, but also in that displacement affecting the the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. um, so it's the it's the insects, it's the birds that these plants support. Mm. So, as an example, if you went out and counted caterpillars on one of our native oak, oak species, you're going to find hundreds and hundreds of cal caterpillars of possibly dozens of different species of insect. Oh, wow. And, you know, these caterpillars are feeding the birds, and then the birds get eaten by some of the mammals, you know, or their eggs get eaten by some of mm -hmm. And so, you know, life goes on. Whereas a Bradford pear sitting there, you know, neat, um, kind of neatly planted in a row along the edge of your driveway or in front mm -hmm. of a shopping mall is going to be almost completely devoid of of insects, and so the birds aren't really going to show much interest in mm. it either. Um, and so that would largely, you know, that would largely substantiate um, the argument again against uh, exotic plants. Well, that's fairly compelling. <laughs> fairly compelling. So I want to hear the other side. Um, the other, you know, the other side of the argument is when when considering whether to feature native plants in your home landscape. The first thing that you need to realize is that your front yard is not the natural environment. And so, and so the argument that native plants are better adapted to our climate and our, our, the cultural conditions in your yard is largely flawed because again, you're, you know, you're, the developer that built your home scraped all the yeah, native yeah, topsoil, yeah. you know, off of, you know, off of your property and, and put a 
put a house on, you know, put a house on top and then replace some, you know, the topsoil with something light and fluffy that was manufactured in the area. Um, and then you put a native, you know, a native plant in the front yard and expect it to thrive and that's not what was going to be the case. And so my recommendation would be to select plant material that's well adapted for the region. Okay. And any, and any more, um, you know, given the flow of information and the speed at which information flows, um, the awareness of potentially invasive plants is high mm -hmm. and information and the information is readily available. And so, uh, Cheekwood maintains a list of exotic invasive species and we do not, we don't plant, we don't plant those plants. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, great, great explanation. I mean, absolutely fantastic. That was, that was wonderful. A follow-up question I have for you is, when, whenever I think of that, I think of specifically where I am, the native, the, the native plants versus the invasive. Would that question exist anywhere, basically, on the planet at this point? Um, would somebody like you be having the same considerations? I mean, in populated areas where there's been development, is it, you know, in Australia or China, are they worried about invasive species um, from, you know, wherever that may be? Is that, is that a global issue? I, I don't have enough experience. I don't have enough experience to answer your, your, your question comprehensively. I would imagine, I would, I believe so, yes. Okay. Based on my knowledge and experience. And in some areas... Um, it could be, <clears throat> it could be even more of an elevated issue because certain ecosystems are more fragile, are more fragile than others. Mm. Mm. Um, and so if you're in particularly arid environment and the mm. native plants thrive on, you know, just fractions of, of an inch of rainfall every year, um, and, and bloom, grow, flower, seed, you know, do their thing in a short window of time and those areas are overtaken by, you know, an exotic, an invasive exotic plant, then that, that could be even more devastating to a, to a more fragile ecosystem. Yeah, wow, wow. It's really, really interesting, really interesting. Okay, well, uh, this has been fantastic. Is there anything you, in particular, that you would like to share with our listeners? Come to Cheekwood. <laughs> I think um, that's great advice. Yeah. Uh, for the for the home own you know for the home owner um, it would be it would be not uh, is just to be brave in the garden I'd like to quote Elizabeth Lawrence and, and when she said are you cruel enough to be a gardener you're you're going to kill plants um, they don't. I love that. They don't have feelings, um, and for the most part, can be reproduced. Can be reproduced. Um, so try it out. Depend on you know your local resources like Cheekwood mm -hmm. Botanical Gardens and independent garden centers. Um, don't buy your plants at big box. You know big box. USA, mm -hmm. um, support a local business, which is also where you're going to find the, a deeper wealth, you know, wealth of information, knowledge, and expertise. 
Well, I think that's fantastic. And one follow-up question that I would regret not asking. To me, this is such a generational thing, and I have young kids, and something we're very excited to teach and do with them is garden. Um, I know that you folks have a fantastic, uh, you, you really are helping the next generation. Can you just speak for a moment into what that looks like and, and what you guys do for kids here to help educate them on, on uh, you know, what you've created and why it's important? So in um, spring, summer, fall, there's structured programming mm -hmm. for young children and their families. And that looks like our Tuesday for Tots, which has grown into uh, activities five days a week, Tuesday through Saturday. Um, and so that is come out, spend time with a, a professional, work on an activity with, with your child, um, and, um, and kind of build on that experience. Summer camp and field trips are other good examples of, of structured programming for children in Nashville. And so between camp and, and school trips, Cheekwood is making, you know, 10, 15,000 impressions to school-aged children in Nashville, which is huge and free for all of the kids in Nashville. Uh, I think that's one of the lesser known um, things about Cheekwood's community outreach and community service is all of the field trips to, to Cheekwood are free. Oh, that is um, awesome. And for members, the, the TOTS programming is free. Um, and then we have the children's garden and the trains. Both of, <laughs> both of these are garden spaces that were designed and activated for children. And so um, as a professional who is participated directly in, in the design and management of those spaces, I've always cautioned myself, at, as well as others, is not to overestimate the jumping off point with your child or a young person. Um, they, you know, you don't need to drag them out into nature and say, mm -hmm. this is a plant and these are its <laughs> roots and this is what a plant needs, right? Just get them outside. Yeah, just do it together. Um, and do it together. And Cheekwood is, you know, Cheekwood is enjoyable for the younger people just as it is for the older people. Maybe they don't even know yeah. why. It's just outside and, it, you know, it's beautiful. It, it smells good. And, um, it does smell have good. good. Have a good time. It does smell so good. It smells so good. Well, listen, you are an uh, absolute joy to speak with, and I can't tell you how appreciative we are of the time. We do a rapid-fire segment every time, so I'm going to hit you with a couple rapid-fire questions. Uh, favorite book, and this can be a book you're currently reading or a book you'd like to recommend? The Botany of Desire. The Botany of Desire. Okay, are you beach or mountains? Mountains. Favorite room in your home? Bay window and the breakfast night. Man. That was decisive. That was very, very decisive. Well, listen, Peter, thank you so much for being our guest, uh, giving us a tour of Cheekwood, and for sharing your tips on, on you know, how to, how to make it all work. For more information on Cheekwood, you can visit their website, which is www.cheekwood.org, or follow on Instagram, at Cheekwood. Check our show notes for links. 
Ladies and gentlemen, until next week, I'm your host, Andrew Denny. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, we would love for you to share Couture and Construction, and we want to hear your feedback. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Couture and Construction is brought to you by Textures Nashville, produced by Davis Osborne and Chelsea Rand, and is recorded live in the Textures Nashville showroom within the Nashville Design Collective. Except for today, we're at Cheekwood in Nashville.